Pure Dog Talk is the voice of purebred dogs. We talk to the legends of the sport and give you the tips and tools to create an awesome life with your purebred dog. From showing to preservation breeding, from competitive obedience to field work, from agility to therapy dogs, and all the fun in between, your passion is our purpose. Welcome to Pure Dog Talk. I am your host, Laura Reeves, and I'm really excited, you guys. I've got a very cool guest for us today. This is Rob Downey, and he is the CEO of a dog food company called Animate, but he is also a companion animal nutritionist and has done some really interesting research about feeding our performance dogs. All right, guys, are you planning your next litter of puppies? Or maybe you just finished your foundation bitch and you're ready to start health testing. Embark, creator of the highest rated dog DNA tests on the market, offers specialized testing just for breeders. And while they're offering a few different tests, only the Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit was made to provide breed-relevant disease screening for your purebred dogs. It includes traits testing, such as coat color and body size, DLA diversity testing, breed ancestry, easy-to-download OFA submission reports, and the only genetic coefficient of inbreeding test available. Find out why thousands of breeders have trusted Embark to enhance their breeding program, including me, through screening for breed-specific genetic conditions, understanding traits, and identifying genetic diversity. To save on the most accurate, most comprehensive dog DNA kit, visit EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK to take $20 off a full-priced Embark for Breeders dog DNA kit. That's EmbarkVet.com backslash breeders and use the code PUREDOGTALK. I'm excited. I really want to dig into this with you, Rob, and I really want to give the audience some ideas to work with. So welcome. Well, thanks, Laura. I'm honored to be here, and hopefully we can provide some information that people will find useful. Yeah, it'd be awesome. So talk to me a little bit how you got started in deciding to do nutrition, because I think this is kind of an interesting story. And how do you get to where you are today, like running your own pet food company? Like, that's a cool journey. That's a long journey. (laughs) Actually, I was born and raised with dogs. And it's really all I ever want to do is work with dogs. And I think you will find with a lot of people that are really into dogs, like I am, we actually get along better with dogs than we do with people. Yes, absolutely. I grew up with short hairs and pointers and we did field trials and we always had a dog or two around the house or a kennel. My mom and dad, growing up in the Depression, oh wow, okay, you could have a dog in the house, but it had to have a job. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that wasn't a job. So we had hunting dogs as I grew up, and then I went away to college in northern Minnesota, and I took in a sled dog race, and that really changed everything for me. I really enjoyed that, but I will have to tell you that. One of the first things my dad taught me about training dogs, remember when I was pretty young, he said, he said, you got to be smarter than the dog you're training. So he said, you ought to stick with some pretty stupid ones. 
<laughs> terrible. That is an awful thing. Sounds like something my father would say. Yeah, exactly. Right. But yeah, being smarter than the dog, I have German wire hair pointers. So it's like a daily struggle. <laughs> right. So in Minnesota, I took in a sled dog race and I thought, wow, this is great. And so I actually started to accumulate some cast offs from people. Right. Because being a young college student with no money, I couldn't afford to buy them. And right. within a year, I was training them and we actually were beating some of the people that had bred them to the point where some of them would not admit that that was the same dog. <laughs> they didn't like this. And so this sort of handful of misfits that either was too slow or too this or too that, they were my dogs and we really enjoyed it. And then one day, my lead dog, Heidi, I go out to train and she comes barking out of her house ready to go, but her hind end isn't working. She's literally dragging her hind end, which certainly freaked me out. Rushed her to a veterinarian, and after extensive testing, they determined that she was selenium deficient. Right. So I changed the diet, and not only did she perform better, but the whole dog team performed better. And it was really my aha moment, like, okay, this is neat. I want to study nutrition. So I changed my major, and now 40 years later, I now know that she wasn't selenium deficient. Right. <laughs> but I found how important diet was in performance. So I changed my major and transferred to Ohio State. And then I did my undergraduate at Ohio State. And then there's a professor, Dr. David Kronfeld, who was probably the world's leading canine nutritionist at the time, was at the University of Pennsylvania School of Veterinary Medicine. And he came out and interviewed me and he asked me to come out and do a study with him at Penn. This was going to be a seven-week or an eight-week study to look at stamina and dogs, and it turned out to be a seven-year program, which was really quite amazing. We did everything from measuring stamina and dogs to we did a pretty extensive heat stress study as well. Oh, so wow. A lot of stuff that maybe at some point we can talk about heat stress as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and this is what I really want to talk to you about today. I have performance dogs. Many of my listeners have performance dogs. So I really wanted to talk about some of the research you did there at Penn about feeding performance dogs. Well, you know, show you how long ago it was. Back in those days, the idea was that carbohydrate load them just like you do humans, right? Right. The marathon runner eating a bowl of pasta. Right. And we realized that that wasn't the way to go with dogs. So we did a study where we could actually increase stamina by 30% in running dogs by altering proteins, fats, and carbohydrates. And that has become the seminal study. In fact, it's still cited in the NRC nutrient requirements of dogs and cats. Very cool. So talk to us about what this is. And I know some people, I, I have an ex-husband that's a field trial guy that was really into this particular thing. So I have a little bit of it in the back of my head, but like this much. So give us the breakdown on that. How does that actually work? How does it work in the dog's body? Well, we found that positive correlation between how much fat was in the diet and how far the dog could run. Found a negative correlation, slight, very slight negative correlation between the amount of carbohydrates and how far they could run. But the bottom line is that any kind of long-term exercise you're initially burning storage carbohydrates called glycogen. Okay. And that really helps you 
burst out of the gate or run up a hill. Mm -hmm. But once you start to use that, then these dogs over time become fat metabolizers. So 80% of the energy these dogs are using when they're running field trials or sled dog races or more long-term are burning fat. But it's protein in the form of red blood cells that are carrying the red blood cells to the tissue because this fat is actually being burned in the tissues and it's an oxidative process. So it needs oxygen. So you need red blood cells to carry the oxygen to burn the fat. And so that's where the protein comes in. So you need increased fat, you need increased protein, but you do need a minimal amount of carbohydrates to help with stool quality and feedability is what we call it. Mm -hmm. And so when we're talking about, and I think this is an important distinction to make, you're talking about the glycogen burn that is like for a sprinter, you know, for your 30 second or your one minute agility run. That's different than your one hour field trial stake at 30 miles an hour. (laughs) But the difference is you need that glycogen replenishment so that if you're starting on day two, even right. in a food trial, if you don't have muscle glycogen stored in the body, what happens is that the dogs really don't have any zip. They're pretty sour. They just... They don't bounce back. Yeah, they don't bounce into it. So there's a whole nother group of studies we did in a supplement we make that actually replenishes muscle glycogen. Because the bottom line is Mother Nature is going to replenish muscle glycogen over time. But if you're doing back-to-back events, so if you're doing agility and you're doing three days in a row or morning, noon, and night, you need something to replenish the muscle glycogen. So the gold standard that the research that we've done and done at places like Cornell Mm -hmm. come up with this glycogen replenishment, and that's a product, a supplement we sell. So in other words, if I'm going to work my dog today, If I use this glycogen replacement immediately post-exercise, tomorrow he's going to have 99% of the muscle glycogen restored in the body. But if I don't use anything, he's probably only going to have 50%. So it's funny. Field trial people have told me that oftentimes when they're doing these trials that are an hour a day and they're single elimination, Mm-hmm. By the end of the week, some of these dogs, half of them can't even start because they're just worn out. Yeah. By replenishing that muscle glycogen, they go out at full bore at the end of the week as well. So right. it's really the gold standard. So talk to me a little bit about then in the research that you were doing, in addition to changing it from being the carb loading, carb heavy, and emphasizing fats more, did it give you any information about types of carbohydrates or types of proteins or things like that, that help with an actual performance dog. And then follow up to that, talk to us about reproduction and how that also comes into play here. As far as carbohydrates, and you're talking about replenishing muscle glycogen, Mm -hmm. you have to be careful that you don't use something that is going to cause an insulin spike. So the glucose polymer, like maltodextrins, that's one that doesn't cause the insulin spike. And you can give it to them during the day. You know, as far as the fats and the protein, what we found is on a metabolizable energy basis, you need about 30% protein in a diet, 
on a metabolizable energy basis and about 55% fat on a metabolizable energy basis. Now, what do I mean by metabolizable energy? That is the energy that's available to the pet or dog after the loss from feces, urine, or any kind of gases. So it's basically the energy that's left in your dog's body to use once all digestion is complete. So when you're looking at a label, you're not going to see 30 and 55, right? Right. As that basis. So for instance, a formula that says 32 protein and mm-hmm. 20% fat on the bag will provide 30% protein on a metabolizable energy and 55% fat on a metabolizable energy. And then even a formula that's 2616. Right. And the reason that the fat is lower is that you need to understand that, I mean, it looks higher, but the number's lower, is right. that there's twice the amount of calories in a gram of fat as there is in protein or carbohydrate. Twice as much calories in a gram of fat as there is in a gram of protein? Or carbohydrate, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. So the thing that you got to be careful about is, Some people think, oh, okay, so my dog needs more fat to run long distances. They just want to add too much fat. But you need that protein level up that's going to carry the oxygen to the tissues to burn that fat. Because if you have too much fat relative to protein, you have what's called sports anemia or stress anemia, which means that the dog will look wonderful, right? Beautiful coat and everything, but it just won't perform. It's just sour. And so I think that's a really, really interesting thread that I'd like to follow a little bit further is the importance of the research that you guys have put into yourself and others in this industry. The balance is actually more important than anything else. Am I understanding that correctly? The balance of protein to fat to carbohydrate and you have a kibble diet and you add extra stuff to it then you've thrown the balance out of whack. Well, yeah. Am I understanding that correctly? That's a perfect way to say you need the balance. You need the balance. And you can balance that whether you're doing kibble, raw, freeze-dried, or whatever. Mm -hmm. So we're talking about calories and protein, fats, carbohydrates. We haven't even started talking about vitamins and minerals. Right. 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 That's all another thing. And that's where we go with reproductive pieces, you know, some of the issues that some people have run into when they, I know we're going to talk about this another time, but the DM, the food mediated DM that has been discussed. So talk to us about, I guess, the connection between that long list of stuff we see at the bottom of our label, right? (laughs) That we don't, we can't pronounce any of the words, the connection between that to the original balance of proteins, fats, carbohydrates. Right, exactly. So, I mean, studies have shown that if you have the proper levels of vitamins, you can actually increase lifespan. In fact, there was an interesting study where they followed 2,000 beagles for about 15 years, and they found that the only thing they varied in the formulas was the vitamin levels. And they had low, medium, high, and extra high. And it's amazing when you think that these dogs on extra high vitamins live 23% longer than the dogs on average vitamin levels. Can you imagine that? 
Interesting. Okay. So talk to us about how do we know? So if we're a consumer, how do we know what's average and what's extra? <laughs> That's really the difficult part because yeah. here's the scary thing is. So they do this study and the dogs on extra high vitamins live 23% longer than the dogs on average vitamin. They had 29% less veterinary visits on extra high vitamins than they did average vitamins. And they were 32% less likely to have tumors. The sad part is when they went back and they examined the diets on the market, they found less than 5% of the diets had extra high vitamins. Wow. Now, how scary is that? Wow. Now, why is that? Yeah, why is that? Tell me, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> part of the reason I think it happens is that vitamins and minerals aren't sexy. Everybody's looking to have this novel protein or fancy kangaroo or salmon or this or that. That what sells food, not talking about vitamins and minerals. And part of that also is a lot of companies really don't have good science behind them or nutritionists. And sadly, one of the things we learned in 2008 with the Great Recession of 2008 is that the pet people aren't going to cut the budgets on the pet. The pet industry is recession-proof. So then everybody and their brother starts making pet foods. And a lot of these companies that are starting now don't have a nutritionist behind them, and they don't have good science behind them. And then you take that one step farther, the levels that are listed according to AFCO, which are what we have to hit as far as pet food company, right. those levels are all over the place. You know, it's just difficult if you're just going by those levels, that doesn't give you a very warm, fuzzy feeling. Right. And so curiosity then, are the AFCO standards, and you're going to say the, the full name of it because I can never get it right, but the AFCO standards, are those what you would think of as low vitamins, for example, in this particular Beagle study we're talking about? Because that's the bare requirements or? No, they tell you with a lot of the vitamins, they give you minimums and highs. Okay. Max and mins. Some of the minerals, not necessarily the case. And what we're now entering in this day and age is a concern about copper. You hear a lot about copper levels now. Used to be only hearing about in Bedlington Terriers. Now you're hearing about it in Dobermans and labs. And unfortunately, AFCA requirements used to require minimum of 7.3 parts per million, maximum of 250 parts per million. How crazy is that? That's a pretty big gap there. <laughs> so studies have shown that anything above 40 parts per million might create some issues, but yet they could still go to 250. So now what they've done is they've just eliminated the upper level. And so now it says minimum 7.3. So I guess my point is this. If you've got a pet food company that's starting and they're basing their product solely on AFCO numbers, I'm not sure that that's the proper way to go. Okay. And then the other thing is you have a lot of companies doing pretty good research, but they're not necessarily releasing it. And why aren't they releasing it? Because then every Tom, Dick, and Harry that comes down the road starts to copy them, and then they start right. producing it. Right. I mean, this is a real copycat industry. In fact, to show you how bad it is, many years ago with one of the big kibble companies, they added a new vitamin and they misspelled it. Within a few months, there was a half a dozen other pet food companies now listing that vitamin and they misspelled it as well. Oh my God, that's bad. <laughs> that's amazing. Okay. 
Hang tight, guys. Got a little bit of information for you. We'll be right back to the podcast in a minute. Pure Dog Talk is proudly sponsored by Trupanion, medical insurance for the life of your pet. Trupanion cares passionately about pets and makes sure their policy has what it takes to serve you and your furry companions. In fact, they are the first pet insurance provider to cover certain health conditions associated with breeding animals through their specialized breeding rider. Their industry-leading coverage does not stop there. Trupanion's free breeder support program also allows you to send your litters home protected with an offer for a Trupanion policy. Learn more about all of the perks that Trupanion offers breeders by following the link on my partner page at puredogtalk.com. All right, so back to our conversation on specifically performance dogs. And when you and I talked originally when we were talking about doing this podcast, you made a really interesting comment to me that I thought was important for people to hear that reproduction is performance. Right, right. When we look at performance, I might be performing up in Alaska on a sled dog trail. You might be looking for performance as far as a breeding animal. Somebody else might be looking for performance and agility. But those are really pretty well related. Now, the stresses of each of those things are going to be different. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's still performance. Okay. What performance you're looking for, whether you're just looking for maintenance, are you looking for breeding animals or, you know, it's still all performance. Okay. And from your education, from your experience, from your knowledge, do you see particular differences in terms of ingredients that you're going to use with breeding animals that would be different than any other performance? Any minerals or vitamins, like I have to have more DHA or, you know, whatever. Well, the most important thing you need to remember, dogs don't require ingredients. They require nutrients. Good. Okay. And sometimes we get too caught up in what this ingredient is as opposed to what nutrients it's providing. Okay. And that certainly is changing as we're moving forward. Like, obviously, there's some things that I might increase more in a, you know, like, obviously, if I'm working a sled dog at 20 below in Alaska, Versus trying to breed a female, Mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily worry about as much fat, obviously, in the diet. Mm -hmm. But certainly protein is important. Certainly Mm -hmm. calcium levels are important. Those are the kind of things that you need to be considering. Okay, good. And this is another topic that I know we're going to drill down on down the road. But what are your three best tips for reading a food label? (laughs) <laughs> how do I know what I'm feeding my dog and how do I compare that? And I think that's super important as people, you know, they get mad at this company or mad at that company or whatever. And then they want to know, how do you compare? So the two things, how do you read it? And then how do you compare between products? Yeah, it's almost impossible to read an ingredient list and determine nutritional quality because virtually every ingredient you see on that side panel, and I don't care if it's kibble, raw, canned, or whatever, comes in at least four different quality levels. So I could take one of my virtual recipes and just go to cheaper ingredients and cut between 8 and $16 off a bag my cost. So you can imagine by the time the retail customer is getting that, 
what that difference in price would be, yet it would read virtually identical. Really? Yeah. Can you give me a, for example, you know, I don't want to put anybody's recipes out here into the podcast land. Oh, no, <laughs> but give me a, for example, on that. Yeah, That's right, really right. fascinating. So like, for instance, I would suggest your listeners to go for specific term ingredients. That's one. Okay. So if it says fish meal, mm-hmm. it could be salmon today, tilapia tomorrow. But if it says salmon, it has to be salmon. Okay, that's a really good tip. You know, and that goes even fats. Mm-hmm. If it says poultry fat, mm-hmm. it could be chicken, turkey, or duck. Whereas if it says chicken, it's got to be chicken. The other thing is, is the formula a fixed formula or is it based on market? So in other words, most of the good companies do fixed formulas. That means that every time we make a product, it's got the exact same recipe. That's mm-hmm. a fixed formula. Market formulas are actually more determined by the price on the market. So in other words, if chicken goes up, you might lower the amount of chicken and add more of this. You know, that's sort of a market-driven formula. And how does one identify between the two? Like I would never even know. And I pay attention to these things. I wouldn't even know how to find that out. I don't know that you can. I don't know. (laughs) I mean, that's the kind of thing that as consumers, as dog people, and we all know, I caveat right out here in front of God and everybody, the most fought about item in dogdom that isn't training is feeding. (laughs) Dog food makes everybody crazy. And so trying to educate, having educated people to make educated decisions is what I'm all about. Right. I mean, here's a perfect example. We look at ash content. Okay. Ash is really the non-digestible portion of an ingredient. For instance, when a human dies, they get cremated. Mm-hmm. What do we get back their ashes? We actually do that with pet foods. We incinerate it. When we get back the ashes, it tends to be a lot of bone, and it tends to be a lot of minerals. Now, if you want quality meat or fish, you want low ash, less mm-hmm. bone, less meat. To show you the difference, good quality low ash meat or fish is about 69 to 70% protein and only 10 or 11% ash. Poor quality meat or fish is about only 42 to 45% protein and 24 to 28% ash. Okay. Now, here's the problem. If I put chicken in my product, we use only low ash. I'm not legally allowed to call it low ash. I can only call it chicken. So the next guy could be using poor quality chicken. Mm-hmm. And so his protein in that is significantly less. Interesting. And again, is there any way to find that out if you're a consumer? Well, that's one of the things. Don't be afraid to call the pet food company and ask them questions. If they're not okay. willing to share that kind of information, with mm-hmm. then maybe you ought to think twice. We actually put the ash content on our bags because we think it's that important. Okay, so how does that ash content, so you just said, you know, your high high quality meat, your ash content's only about 10%. Is that what's going to show on the bag? And another company will show something else? Well, if you're starting to add, all these products also have some plant proteins or mm-hmm. plants in them, you know, grain-inclusive or grain-free. Those tend to be almost no ash. So that's going to lower the overall ash. So basically, a good quality product should have 
between seven and nine percent ash. Okay. If a product's ten or more, then you might want to consider that starting to get up there. Okay. Okay. That's a really good tip also. Yeah, and you need to understand that ash makes a plant more alkaline. Where dogs and cats evolved on an acidic diet. Meat and fish are naturally acidic. So if you're starting to add too much ash, you can actually increase the alkaline. And that also, I mean, maybe we'll talk about this later. I don't want to get into this. This is another four hours. Yeah, we've got many conversations to be had. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, again, I'm someone that pays attention to this stuff. I've talked to a lot of dog food people and nutrition people and all this. And you're telling me a number of things that I did not know. And that is my goal, is to make sure people get information that they don't have and then know where to get more. Well, even think the term meal. That's a processing term that means the moisture has been removed. So if I take chicken and remove the moisture, it now becomes chicken meal. The problem is Europe doesn't use the term meal. They might just call it chicken or they'll call it dehydrated chicken. But in the United States, we have to call it meal. So it doesn't mean it's a bad thing. What your listeners ought to know is that there's a whole difference between chicken meal and chicken byproduct meal. Once you go to byproducts, now you can include beaks, feet, and feather meal, which is really kind of sad because guess what? Feathers are protein. Very poor quality protein, but it's a protein. So there's a huge difference between saying the term meal and byproduct meal. Okay. Third fabulous tip. I love that. And that one I have heard, but I think that that is something that not everybody knows. And so I think that's a super important one to put out there in the world. So Rob, thank you. Thank you very much. I really, really appreciate just like the ability to sit here and pick your brain, right? Like That is the coolest thing ever. I'm surprised it took this long. <laughs> pick my brain, it does. there isn't much there. No, I'm telling you, I've got hours more conversations to have with you, but this is really good. And I really appreciate your time and your effort on this. And I look forward to being able to call you up and pick your brain about something else next time. Great. Great. I'm really honored to be here, Laura. I think you do a wonderful job. You provide a great service and thank you. Thanks a lot, Rob. Like the NPR of dogdom, Pure Dog Talk is here for you to make sense out of everyday things to add nuance to your understanding and tools to your tech box, to bring history to life and propel the living history of purebred dogs into the future. The Pure Dog Talk patrons support the work we do here by contributing what they can to our crowdsourcing campaign. In return for the generosity that keeps the MP3s rolling, patrons are invited to a private Facebook community where dog people can share applaud and commiserate together. Our monthly After Dark gatherings provide a virtual get-together for the group. You can find the link to join the best community and purebred dogs right at the top of the homepage at www.puredogtalk.com. While you're there zooming around on the site, check out our Pure Dog Talk swag link. You can share the love by grabbing some of our fun Pure Dog Talk gear. Just remember, your support adds up to a huge voice for purebred dogs. As always, if you have any questions or input, we'd love to hear from you. 
The show notes and links to resources on today's topic are available at puredogtalk.com. Drop us a note in the comments or email to laura at puredogtalk.com. Remember, guys, this podcast is for you. So if you want to know something, give me a holler. We'll do a podcast for you. If you wouldn't mind, you could help me out here. Take a couple minutes to visit iTunes and give us a review. The Dog Show Superintendents Association is a proud supporter of Pure Dog Talk. Our Dog Show Superintendents are the hardworking people who make the dog show function. They are advocates for education and mentorship in the purebred dog fancy. So stop by the Supers Desk at your next show. Tell them how much you love Pure Dog Talk and give them a shout out for their support. That's all for today. Thank you for joining us on Pure Dog Talk.